This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. We're going to start with a story out of Germany, which just got a new defense minister this week. This comes at a crucial time for the nation, with Europe at war and Germans crying out for greater military power. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, so the old German defense minister, Christine Lambrecht, she announced her resignation on Monday, January 16th. We talked before on this show about a lot of the criticism that had been directed her way. Uh, But really, I don't think it's one particular thing or one particular incident that led to her resignation. There was, for example, the video she made on New Year's Day that most Germans just felt was pretty embarrassingly shallow uh, for a defense minister to be making about the war in Ukraine. But really, there's kind of mass dissatisfaction with her and a frustration at the sluggish pace of military reforms within Germany. So, of course, if you're a regular listener to the show, regular listener to the show, you'll know about just within days of Ukraine's invasion, Olaf Schulz got up there and announced big reforms to German for the German military, lots of money to be spent on the German military. He was met with a standing ovation. This was incredibly popular within Germany. Opinion polls soon started showing that people wanted things to go further. Almost a year on from that, though, yes, there have been some pretty important decisions, and I don't want to take away from a lot of that, but there is this sense that, okay, we didn't get this revolution quite as we were promised, and that we're still getting newspaper reports. It was on the cover of Spiegel last week uh, of funding shortages in the German military and equipment not working because it's not being looked after properly and and all, uh, all these kind of things. So there's an impatience within the German media and the German population. We were promised change. We wanted this change. This change is not happening fast enough, and it's not being managed well enough. And uh, I think there's a pretty strong argument that a lot of that is even Olaf Schultz himself's fault. But Mm. this is behind uh, the fallout and, and the resignation of Christine Lambrecht. She was just deemed by the media not capable of bringing that transformation about. And instead, she's now been replaced by Boris Pistorius, a uh, somebody who has a lot of experience within local politics within Germany or kind of state level politics. Not as much a, a, a name on the on the big scene. He's an interesting, uh, I think, probably surprising choice to many. But one thing about him, he is he does have a reputation as a man who gets things done. Uh, I mean, we'll we'll see how well he does in this department. But you can see, understand why he would then be given this job. He's known as a man of action. He's also the only member of Schultz's cabinet who served in the military. It was just a couple of years of conscription back in the 80s. But it means he does have some military experience. And so it seems that there's hope that he's someone who can kind of turn the situation around and turn some of these grand ambitions into rapid actions. 
Well, that's a that's a big job, and uh, there are high hopes among a lot of Germans uh, that uh, he will be able to move the ball forward on this. What more can you tell us about him, and particularly his uh, associations with Russia? Right. So this is the other interesting thing about him, aside from this man of action, is that he is reputed to be pretty pro-Russian. So uh, he had a long-term girlfriend, which he broke up with this summer. Boris's long-term girlfriend was Doris. Uh, Doris Schroeder-Kopf. And uh, the name Schroeder there might sound familiar because Doris Schroeder-Kopf was the fourth wife of Gerhard Schroeder. This is Germany's former chancellor. Germany's former chancellor who's kind of BFFs with Vladimir Putin. This is the guy that um, put in place the Nord Stream pipelines and then went off to have a lucrative job within Russia uh, working for a Russian state oil company. So, and you quite often see pictures with him and Putin, even to the, you know, he was at Putin's birthday party, I think it was some years ago. You know, it, it's, it's almost a social friendship, even beyond uh, some of the, a political arrangement. Hmm. And Dora showed a cop was along at a lot of those meetings. There's pictures of her and Putin. Uh, apparently, she even adopted a couple of Russian kids. She's very close to Russia. And so, you know, that's, that's his ex-girlfriend. And even Pistorius himself he has a lot of uh, links with Russia. He took his school leaving exams in English and in Russian. In 2008, he called for a review of the EU sanctions against Russia. So he's someone who's been wanting a lighter touch and, and less sanctions, fewer sanctions on Russia. He was a member of the German-Russian friendship group. So uh, he's very much on the kind of the pro-Russian wing of the Social Democratic Party. You know, like you said, as you set this up, this is a critical junction. Today, uh, defense ministers are meeting at the uh, Ramstein Air Base in Germany to discuss issues about the, uh, the Ukrainian war. Top of the agenda. Will Germany let other countries sell or give Leopard 2 tanks to uh, Ukraine? As part of the condition of sale for these Leopard 2 tanks, you know, Germany selling Leopard 2 tanks for Poland you know, they say, well, we, we want veto power as to who you pass them on to. So Germany can say yay or nay on that. Uh, so really, there's a whole number of factors where everyone's looking to Germany. What are you going to do about Ukraine? Are you going to, to stand up to Russia? And so going out of the way to appoint a figure that's pretty surprising to many people, that's mm-hmm. not been on national politics before, he also um, breaks the kind of the gender parity within the German parliament, uh, German cabinet. Schultz has put a lot of uh, stock in having an equal number of men and women serving in his cabinet. Uh, It's a pretty ridiculous basis on which to choose a cabinet member, but he went against that in choosing uh, this individual, and maybe he will fire a man and replace him with a woman to to restore that balance. But he's going out of his way at this time to appoint this guy that is actually pretty pro-Russian, and that's a, a significant indication of where Schultz is, where German politics is, and that you have still this uh, support for Russia from Germany. This support is tempered by the fact that that is unpopular within Germany and is unpopular within the European Union and unpopular within Germany's allies. So there are concessions to Ukraine here and there, but all along are all these excuses and these foot draggings. And on the Leopard 2 tanks, for example, Olaf Schultz, uh, his latest excuse was, well, we, we will allow Leopard tanks to be sold when once America gives Ukraine uh, Abrams tanks. Mm. And 
I'm sure if America does that, he may well put forwards another excuse. Mm -hmm. We've had since February footjacking from Germany on this, and you have a signal that that's going to continue. Well, that is quite extraordinary because this has been a, a pretty common uh, refrain against Olaf Scholz since the war in Ukraine began, that he has been uh, reluctant to help Ukraine and he has been fairly pro-Russian all along. For him to put this man, uh, to appoint him as defense minister at this time, uh, really is a, a strong signal of uh, just how determined he is to continue doing what he's doing in spite of the criticisms lodged against him. The relationship between Germany and Russia is one that we watch very closely. Our editor-in-chief has drawn a lot of attention to this. Explain why that's so critical. Yeah, this is something we've been watching for a long time. In 1962, The Plain Truth wrote, once a German-dominated Europe is fully established, Germany will be ready to negotiate and bargain with Russia and behind the backs of the Western allies, if necessary. Uh, and so we've been watching for this German-Russian relationship. This is something that has occurred throughout history, that you had secret treaties between Germany and Russia in the 1920s and the 1930s, before, even before they much more publicly divided Poland up between the two of them. Uh, they divided Poland up between them even towards the end of the 18th century. These are two countries where they've got no good geographic borders between them. If either country wants to be able to focus on other areas, they kind of need to shore up their own relationship. And then you bring in Bible prophecy. And then you, as Mr. Flurry has done, you, you have some of these prophecies that talk about, for example, Germany simmering with resentment, like it talks about in Jeremiah 1 against the United States, uh, that Germany will turn against the United States. You look at that history. You look at then other prophecies that talk about Russia working against the United States, about Germany, Russia, and China all working together, uh, that Bible prophecy indicates very strongly that there's going to be, uh, as America, as, as Germany kind of switches sides and secretly starts working to bring down the United States, that they would work with Russia to do that. And that makes what we're seeing in, uh, with, with Schultz and their res Germany's response to Ukraine very concerning. Well, we have a little article on the website, an in-brief, uh, called Meet Germany's New Defense Minister, Boris Pistorius. I'm just intrigued. I think uh, many listeners would like to know more about this relationship between Germany and Russia. Where would you direct them for more on that? So we have an article from our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed from the July 2022 trumpet print edition. I mean, obviously, some of the details of the Ukraine war have moved on quite significantly since last summer. But the Bible prophecy that that, that describes in terms of that Russian relationship and understanding that German-Russian relationship is, uh, is still spot on. So uh, that would be a great place to learn more about it. We'll link to both of those in our show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. Over now to the Ukraine war. After Vladimir Putin put a new general in place last week, it appears Russia is gaining ground in eastern Ukraine. To learn about this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, we are now on day 331 in Russia's war against Ukraine. And last week we talked about how the Russians appeared to be right on the cusp of conquering the salt mining town of Solodar. Uh, there were still questions about that at that time, about whether the Russians were exaggerating their gains there or not. Uh, well, in the days after that, it became clear that Russia, and mainly the Russian Wagner group, had conquered 
this mining town. The conquest came at an enormous cost to the Russians. Uh, they used this, you know, meat grinder strategy to overpower the Ukrainians. So that basically just means throwing vast numbers of men into the battle and not worrying about how many of them died in the process. This is, you know, a common uh, strategy that Russia has used throughout history, and that's because it works. You know, when the Tsar and his generals place very little value on, on the lives of their soldiers, they can accomplish all kinds of goals, even when the opponent is better armed and better trained and better positioned. Mm. So it does look like this strategy has worked in Solidar. Estimates say that 4,000 of the Wagner Group mercenaries were killed around there in the last couple of weeks, and then another 10,000 were injured. But in the wow. end, the Russians uh, took it. And as we mentioned last week, this is a potentially pivotal conquest. You know, that that's mostly because Solidar is just adjacent to Bakhmut. And uh, this victory positions Russia to push against Bakhmut, and Bakhmut is just a vital hub for Ukraine. It's uh, a great deal of their resupply passes through Bakhmut. It also factors into other logistical concerns as well. And then, of course, there's the fact that the Ukrainians, you know, they're, they're not bulletproof. They're they're trying not to use this meat grinder strategy, and they are defending, which generally means fewer uh, casualties than those who are invading. But at the same time, they have fewer troops. So even if they lose fewer mm -hmm. in a battle like this one, it may end up still being proportionate to the Russian losses. So, you know, some analysts are saying that this Russian, this Russian victory of, of uh, Solidar was a Pyrrhic victory. But since Solidar sets Russia up to potentially take Bakhmut, and since it furthered the Russian goal of just detriting the Ukrainians, I think it's uh, too soon to give it that label. And there was also evidence this week of uh, escalation in Russia's tactics. Tell us about that. Sure, yeah. There was a, a really tragic story on Saturday afternoon. That's when the Russians fired a volley of missiles at Ukrainian cities. And one of these was a KH-22 hypersonic missile that struck a, well, it was a nine-story apartment building in Dnipro, Ukraine. Um, and the devastation from this was extreme. The the video footage in the aftermath is just stunning to look at. But this collapsed 72 uh, apartments in a fell swoop, and the death toll has kept on rising throughout the week. It hit 45 yesterday, um, and then there are also 80 people that are injured, some of them critically. And this was, you know, this was a place where families lived with their children. So many of the victims were also children, children that are now dead or badly injured. So some of the missiles in this volley were. They were intercepted by Ukrainian defenses, but this KH-22, this is one of those hypersonic missiles that we talk about so often on the show. These fly at several times the speed of sound, and they're actually anti-ship missiles designed to take out war vessels, but um, Ukraine has no way to defend against these, no hope of intercepting them. So this KH-22 had no trouble striking its target, and its target was dozens and dozens of innocent civilians. Another another story is uh, the the fact that they're warning that uh, nuclear war might be on the table. 
That's right. Yeah, this was uh, just yesterday that former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev warned that if Russia loses in Ukraine, then that could ignite a global nuclear war. Mm -hmm. He said, nuclear powers have never lost major conflicts on which their fate depends. The defeat of a nuclear power in a conventional war may trigger a nuclear war. So that's, uh, you know, it's mostly intended as a warning to NATO, because NATO is suddenly switching into a considerably higher gear with arming Ukraine, um, with Patriot batteries and IFVs, and there's even serious tanks now starting to be sent there. So Med Medvedev is saying, if we start to lose, we will be forced to deploy our nuclear weapons and use them. Um, now, it's not really true that a nuclear power can't tolerate a military loss. The Soviet Union, you know, they were badly beaten in Afghanistan back in the 1980s. They were nuclear, and yet they sucked it up and they went home. Uh, somewhat similar with America, another nuclear power that retreated in most humiliating fashion from Afghanistan just a couple of years back. But Medvedev is trying to convince NATO that if they arm Ukraine enough to prevent Russia from defeating it, then poor old, well-meaning, misunderstood Russia will, you know, be forced, as much as they hate to do it, to ignite the whole world in a conflict that could possibly wipe mankind out. Mm -hmm. um, and then the head of the Russian Orthodox Church made some similar statements this week, too. He called the Ukrainians and those who helped them madmen. Of course, the madmen are not the ones who wage this war and who are killing children with hypersonic missiles. No, it's, it's the Ukrainians. And Patriarch Kirill says that if Russia doesn't get its way, then they'll probably end the world. So pretty similar to what Medvedev says. So it's kind of more of the same kind of saber rattling that we've heard so often in this conflict. Last month, Putin himself made similar comments. So it's easy to get maybe a bit dismissive of these kinds of things because the Russians have said them several times. But desperation can poison men's minds. Um, and even though Russia has had a minor victory now with Solidar, they remain mostly desperate and panic-stricken. And in light of that, I think these kind of comments, these you know, nuclear threats should not be dismissed. Where would you send people to, uh, to get a sense of the prophetic implications of what we're looking at here? I would send them to an article that Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury wrote uh, actually back in 2014 when Russia first invaded Ukraine and took the Crimean Peninsula. Um, at that time, he wrote this article called The Crimean Crisis is Reshaping Europe. And he really drew attention to how the main thing that we need to be watching for with all of this is Europe's reaction to it. One, one part of that article says, the fear you see in Europe because of events in Crimea, is going to cause 10 leaders in Europe to unite in a sudden and dramatic way and in precise accordance with the Bible's description of that European empire. Europe's new fear of Russia is going to play a major role in hastening the fulfillment of that prophecy. So, you know, whether or not Putin deploys nuclear weapons, it is vital to watch Europe's response to all of this increasing aggression and all these increasing threats. Many Europeans particularly in the east of the continent, they have been just shaken to the core by all of this. And uh, we have to understand that all of that fear is transforming Europe. And that article does a great job of uh, putting all that into perspective. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. Over to the Middle East now. Saudi Arabia made an announcement this week that strikes a blow against the dominance of the U.S. dollar in global markets. To learn what it was, we turn to Mihailo Zekic. 
Yes, well, on January 17th, the Saudi Arabian government made an announcement that it is open to trade in currencies other than the U.S. dollar. Now, this might sound like a strange announcement. Saudi Arabia is nowhere near America. A lot of other countries use different currencies so uh, or in trade. So what's so special about this? Well, Saudi Arabia is one of the biggest exporting countries of oil in the world. It is a major member of OPEC. And in the 1970s, uh, when Richard Nixon took the United States off of the gold standard, or the U.S. dollar off of the gold standard, he replaced it with a deal with Saudi Arabia to make the Saudis' oil dealings and OPEC's oil dealings done within U.S. dollars, which basically turned the dollar from a gold-backed currency to an oil-backed currency. And because of this, because of uh, the power of OPEC, it controls most of the world's major oil exporting countries and modern economies, of course, need oil to function. This has kept the dollar afloat as the world's main trade currency, as the world's reserve currency. It has given it a lot of strength. Now, these words from uh, the Saudi government are starting to put that into question. Here's a quote from the Saudi finance minister. There are no issues with discussing how we, speaking of the Saudis, settle our trade arrangements, whether it is in the U.S. dollar, whether it is the euro, whether it is a Saudi real. So, again, this is just talk at this point. There are no concrete deals saying we're going to phase out the U.S. dollar. But for lately, the Saudis have been making some interesting uh, business dealings, shall we say. In December, they signed a strategic partnership with China with Russia's war in Ukraine going on, the Saudis have been purchasing Russian oil, even though it's supposed to be under sanctions for themselves, and selling their oil to the rest of the world at a far higher p price, in a sense, blackmailing the world and getting around sanctions. So while nominally the S Saudis are a U.S. ally, what Nixon gave the Saudis instead was uh, American protection guarantees, say, from things going on in border countries. Technically, the U.S. and the Saudis are allies, but... These kinds of moves, and especially this talk about abandoning the dollar as the currency of trade, shows that the Saudis may be uh, preparing a bit of a backstab against America. We have followed a lot of stories similar to this demonstrating many nations' uh, desire to transition away from a U.S. dollar-dominated global uh, economy, uh, and you do have to kind of look at these in aggregate and to see the uh, the overall impact that all of these nations kind of uh, taking measures just like this that you're describing by Saudi Arabia uh, is going to have, because the United States economy truly is only able to uh, maintain the stability that, he, that it is in light of massive debt uh, that the United States carries because of that global reserve currency status? Well, like you said, a lot of the economic policies of the United States, like massive debt, massive inflation, massive borrowing, they can only do that. Normally, these kinds of moves would kill economies, mm -hmm. but the United States can get away with it because everybody relies on the dollar for trade. America is, at least on paper, the world's biggest economy. It has all these privileges that make it, uh, shall we say, a special economy that the rest of the world doesn't want to see fail. And the more Am America has sort of gotten into this mindset uh, that they could do a lot of these things indefinitely and that there is never going to be any pushback because of it. 
But we're seeing thing, uh, events like the Saudi announcement show that the rest of the world is starting to get a little bit fed up with mm-hmm. America's policies. If the United States relationship with Saudi Arabia was beneficial, if it was beneficial for the Saudis to continue trading in dollars, they would do so. But with all these other economic problems and with especially as as we're talking about the Middle East, uh, if you look at what happened in Afghanistan, if you look at what happened in Egypt with the Arab Spring, where America helped topple the nominal U.S. ally, you could see that the Saudis are starting to get a bit uh, more reservations as to America's trustworthiness, but also just them trying to stick out for themselves and uh, not be bound to uh, uh, to the American will. Well, we do have an article up on the website about this by Josue Michels. Will Saudi Arabia end the dollar's dominance? Thank you, Mr. Zekic. More Twitter files revelations this week. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the Twitter files was our second biggest story of 2022 when we did our year in review a few weeks ago. And uh, the way things are going, it might end up being one of our biggest stories of 2023 as well. Hmm. Uh, Some of the... uh, the new Twitter files revelations this month are just as shocking, if not more so, than what we learned in December. Uh, specifically, this week, we've learned about two Twitter file stories uh, connected to January 16th. And now those who've listened to this program for any length of time know that that's a date we watch pretty closely. It's actually the anniversary of the death Uh, of our founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, uh, and in the uh, almost four decades now since that's happened, uh, we've definitely noticed that not every year, but most years something significant happens around the anniversary of that death. Uh, And now this week, we had these two ones. The first one's a little more direct, is that it's actually Twitter Files Part 16 was released on January 16th. Uh, That one's um, information revealing that the pharmaceutical industry lobbied Twitter to censor posts critical of the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, so a pretty big story that we knew was going on about the, the government. They're, uh, uh, they're in bed with uh, big tech and big pharma and big media, and they've all got these uh, <laughs> uh, financial interconnections to where the, uh, the, uh, the government employees who approve the vaccines and the, the media people who uh, tell us how great they are make just as much money as the uh, pharmaceutical representatives who are manufacturing them. Uh, and so that's a big story that we'll be we'll be following up on soon. That didn't isn't necessarily the event itself isn't necessarily tied directly to January sixteenth, but it's interesting that the the files revealing that dumped on that day. The other story, which probably has the more significant connection uh, to January sixteenth, we talked about a little bit last week. So some of what I might say is going to be a, a tad bit repetitive, but I, I guess that's okay. Uh, is that this um, Twitter files fourteen? Twitter files part fourteen, which was released a few days before January sixteenth, but it's all about the Nunes memo, which was compiled on January sixteenth like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nunes memo it was actually released to Congress on January 18th, um, 2018, meaning it would have been put together. <laughs> they would have, uh, 
in the days preceding to that, January 17th, January 16th, uh, maybe even a little before that. And uh, that Nunez memo is, uh, it was a really miraculous memo in the fact that it, it was basically our first glimpse into uh, the Spygate scandal, the, the um, John Brennan and Barack Obama and James Clapper and all these intel agencies looking at uh, using this phony steel dossier uh, alleging that Trump had uh, uh, relations with Russian prostitutes and, uh, and illegal business connections with... Uh, Russian oligarchs and all sorts of like horrendous crimes that like someone like Hunter Biden's really done, but uh, but Donald Trump had nothing to do with, and um, they use that to get these warrants to spy on the the Trump campaign, and we the American people didn't really know anything about it <laughs> uh, until uh, the Nunes memo came out. They got like three hundred and eighty some pages of text messages between uh, FBI agent peter struck and his mm -hmm. um the, the woman he was committing adultery with at the time i think her name's lisa page mm -hmm. and where the twitter files come into all this is that obviously the the democrats were very anxious to not have this memo released to congress they did not want congress or the american people uh knowing about it but um but after uh after it was released to congress there was quite a bit of pressure to release it to the American people, which happened on February 2nd. Uh, and so the, the hashtag release the memo went viral, uh, really trying to put pressure to release that on the American people. The Democrats were going kicking and screaming uh, the whole way and uh, try, were trying to make it look like this was all more more Russian disinformation, that everything Devin Nunes saying was lies he got from Russia. Uh, it, that line of reasoning didn't work it was released to the public but now that elon musk has released twitter files 14 we can actually go back through the internal emails between twitter and the fbi at the time mm -hmm. uh and twitter actually told um i think both the well the fbi already knew but they told the uh, the congress people trying to get this memo not released particularly uh they sent a letter to senator diane feinstein and representative adam schiff saying that twitter has quote not identified any significant activity connected to russia with respect to tweets posting original content to this hashtag unquote so basically saying said so twitter <laughs> uh, twitter told them at the time that there's said no there's there are, there are no Russian bots or Russian trolls trying to get this memo released. That we have, we have no evidence of that. But the um, the Democrats ran with the storyline <laughs> anyway. Yep. So it was it was another big lie to cover up their original big lie, uh, which we wouldn't we wouldn't have known about the original big lie if it wouldn't have been for that Nunes memo uh, put together January sixteenth, twenty eighteen, uh, and then we. <laughs> We, we wouldn't have known about this letter. Um, we wouldn't have known about this letter to Diane Feinstein and Adam Schiff uh, if it wasn't for um, a Twitter files part 14, which was um, which was released. Uh, actually, that was released on January 12th, but it's been in the news cycle. Uh, it's been in the news cycle between then and the uh, the release of the uh, next batch of Twitter files on January 16th. 
it's amazing all of the all of this being exposed and especially going back and looking at the the conversations that they were having at the time of the the Nunes memo release to actually have these uh the the exchanges between government officials members of congress and these uh twitter officials uh it's quite extraordinary and it definitely exposes just how blatant their lies have been all along we have uh, an article up on the website Stephen Flurry wrote about this this week Twitter files, they lied about Russia. It was a trumpet brief earlier in the week. You can find it on the website. We will link to it on in the show notes for the program today. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, Japan continuing to ramp up its military capability. Europe responding to Iranian terrorist provocations. The Church of England asking God to bless homosexual marriages. And the most damaging spy in U.S. history being released from prison. We'll be right back. Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Japan continues to cast aside its pacifist limitations and plunge resources into beefing up its military. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, we've spoken on several recent episodes about Japan abandoning the 1% of GDP cap that has long been on their defense spending. That used to be the limit, 1% of gross domestic product. But now they are, you know, just terrified of China's belligerence, Russia's war on Ukraine, and of course, North Korea just across the Sea of Japan there. So Japan has put a plan into place to double that to 2%. 2% may sound small, but for a country with an economy as large as Japan's, this is, you know, it's a quantum leap. This will actually bring Japan's total defense spending to $100 billion, which launches its spending ahead of that of France, Germany, the UK, mm. even Russia and India. So it'll make it the world's third um you know, biggest spender on military matters, only behind the U.S. and China, once these plans are realized. So it really is one of the biggest stories of recent years. And there was a really insightful commentary about this in The Times just a few days ago. They talked about Japan in terms of an alcoholic, with the alcohol being militarism. So the, the metaphor here is basically saying, you know, Japan was stunningly violent during World War II because the nation was essentially drunk on war and on violence. And if you read that history, it really is stunning. I mean, there, there are even reports of Nazis who were allied with Japan and who are not exactly known for their squeamishness. There are reports from some of these Nazis who were stationed in Asia objecting to how violent and evil the Japanese war machine was. Um, so, so the alcoholic metaphor, I think, is a fair one. But then after Japan's defeat at the end of World War II, it was stripped of all of that, and it really prospered for decades as a pacifist, kind of a teetotaling nation. But now Japan is easing back into becoming 
a normalized military nation. And this metaphor, I think, is a really good one, because if Japan were a normal country, then it would be perfectly reasonable for it to maintain land, sea, and air forces. I mean, Japan is an excellent ally to the United States and and many Western countries, so why not let it normalize? But the answer is because Japan is not a normal country. Just like the way a non-alcoholic can enjoy a glass of wine with no trouble, but an alcoholic often can't. And in similar fashion, Japan can't be allowed a bit of militarism and expect to be able to contain all of its tendencies toward excess and fanaticism. Um, Part of this article says... Having dried out three quarters of a century ago, Japan now finds itself plied with booze on every side. You know, so for students of history, for for people who know just how brutal Japan's invasions of Southeast Asia were, I think it should be alarming to see this nation now sitting at the bar, ordering up a drink and telling everybody, no, it's going to be fine. It won't be like last time. I'm going to be moderate. (laughs) You know, it sounds nice. But for those who know this drinker's history, I think we should be skeptical. A huge amount of uh, expenditure on uh, on military gear. Any indications on what they would put that toward? Yes. uh, Japan's military strategy has a heavy focus on naval power. They've already got the world's second most capable Navy by most metrics, just behind the Navy of the U.S. And this $50 billion windfall will continue to build that naval power. The plans call for Japan to buy a lot more American kit, including F-35 stealth fighters, like the ones that are already being used on Japan's kind of their miniature aircraft carriers. They'll also buy more Osprey tilt rotor utility aircraft. Um, And then there are big plans in the works for the highly skilled Japanese workforce to actually start making a lot more of their weapons at home. So that includes plans for an indigenous stealth fighter and amphibious landing craft, also warships and uh, aircraft carriers and submarines as well. So it is just a major increase in naval power that we're talking about here. Um, Geopolitical strategist Peter Zion wrote about this back when, when this news first broke, and he said, Japan is already the second most capable navy in the world. Now they're going to double spending, not a small development. So, you know, this is sounding alarms around the world because Japan is already a formidable naval power, and this new plan will set it up just for major domination. So talk about the uh, prophetic significance of this. Sure, yeah. Uh, Japan is getting off the wagon, you know, militarily speaking, and, and that's something that the trumpet watches very closely. Partly because of that history that I just mentioned a moment ago, not just in World War II, but in other chapters of war as well. We see that during times of war, Japan has this tendency to descend into just a nightmarish kind of fanaticism and brutality. But alongside that history, prophecy also sounds the alarm about this. The Bible says that one of the main alliances in World War III will be a group of Asian countries that the scriptures call the kings of the East, the East they're referring to Asia. Um, And if you look at Ezekiel 38, it lists some names there that uh, point to Japan, showing that we should expect Japan to be a part of this end-time Asian military force. So, you know, when when we keep these scriptures in mind, it really shows us why it's so alarming today to see Japan rapidly abandoning its pacifism and building up its military power. 
Why the Trumpet Watches Japan's March Toward Militarism is the name of the trend article that we'll direct you to if you look at the show notes uh, to get more information about this. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. We spoke last week about Iranian terrorist activity in Britain and Germany. Richard Palmer wrote a trumpet brief this week about it. That's among a number of provocations by the Islamic regime against Europe lately. How will Europe respond? For this, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekic. So at this point, we don't have too many concrete actions, no uh, boots on the ground, no sanctions per se. But we're starting to see Europe move in that direction and in a big way. On Thursday, the European Parliament voted uh, to con- to urge member states to sanction the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or Iran's uh, main uh, export uh, military unit, shall we say, uh, to export the Islamic Revolution, uh, to sanction it as a terrorist group. And all those individuals associated with the IRGC, including Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and President Ibrahim Raisi. Now... The European Parliament doesn't carry too much weight. It's not necess- its decisions aren't necessarily legally binding, but it does show the attitude that its member states and its and the people voting the parliamentarians in are having about these kinds of things. And for that matter, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who does have a lot more political power, she said she supported the motion. Again, this doesn't necessarily mean that there are going to be concrete actions fulfilling this. It's up to the member states to take this uh, admonition as they will. But it's certainly a change in direction. Uh, when the United States pulled out of the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a.k.a. the Iran nuclear deal, it was the Europeans who were upset about it, and it was the Europeans who are urging the United States to remove the IRGC's terrorist designation mm-hmm. in the United States to get Iran back on the nuclear negotiating table. And now we're seeing the Europeans take an about face on this. They're siding with the American position at this point. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, there, there are a lot of terror uh, attempts, attempted attacks that have happened lately. Just, um, just this week, Sweden actually convicted two Iranians for, interestingly enough, spying for the Russian uh, military uh, intelligence agency, the GRU. Uh, stealing Swedish intelligence documents and pass them to Russia from 2011 to 2021. So we're even talking about before the uh, nuclear uh, agreement was even signed, and as far as Sweden is concerned, before Russia invaded Ukraine, before Sweden said it wanted to join NATO, before all these, shall we say, confrontational events and circumstances happened, Iran was still trying to infiltrate the European governments, even governments that nominally don't really pose a threat to them like sweden of all places and trying to cause chaos there and of course you have iran sponsoring russia in other ways like supplying drones to attack in ukraine you have the masha amini protests which saw iran uh go up to the level of the third largest incarcerator of journalists in the whole world in just a few months and europeans are looking at this and they're starting to see just how radical the uh, Islamic regime in Iran is. Perhaps before they thought, okay, they have a lot of rhetoric, they have their own interests to look after, but, you know, they're like one of us, we can deal with them, etc. Now it looks like Europeans are finally coming to realize that there's going to be no negotiations with these guys. These guys are set in their ways. They want to do nothing but cause problems. And if we don't start reacting and start pushing back, we're going to be in a bad place. 
Iranian provocations and European reactions to those provocations feature heavily in end-time biblical prophecy. Explain how so. Well, a prophecy we go to on this program often, especially about Iran, is located in Daniel chapter 11, specifically verse 40. talks about a king of the south and a king of the north, and the king of the south pushing at the king of the north, and the king of the north uh, counterattacking and utterly sweeping the other king away. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, has talked for years and years about this being a prophecy about modern radical Islam led by Iran. That would be the king of the south and the king of the north being a German-led, Catholic-inspired United Europe. You can, uh, our our listeners can uh, learn more about that in our editor-in-chief's free booklet, The King of the South. And it specifically says, as I mentioned, the king of the south will push at the king of the north that word push if you look at what it means in the he- in the hebrew it literally means to butt with horns as a, as an animal or to gore it's a very painful provocation and the king of the south takes the opening shot and that it's that push that causes europe to respond and counterattack and we're seeing these kinds of pushes to uh today that will involve a lot of different things but terror attacks are certainly part of it like we mentioned in this program last week and again, until this point, Europe, maybe they saw Iran as a threat, but they didn't really see Iran as that serious of a threat. They thought maybe of Iran as, as a, somebody that could be worked with, that could be dealt with through normal means. And now the Europeans are seeing that, no, we can't do this. We have, they're the enemy. They're going to be the enemy no matter what. We have to start behaving accordingly. And if you look at Daniel 11, it says that the king of the north will come like a whirlwind, an absolutely overwhelming force. And Europe would not do that if it didn't see Iran as a serious threat, if it didn't feel it needed overwhelming force Mm -hmm. to deal with the problem once and for all. And while there certainly still is a lot more that needs to be happened before this prophecy can be completely fulfilled, we're starting to see Europe get that collective realization right now with events in the European Parliament and in other places. All right, thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. To England now, the Anglican Church won't perform homosexual marriages, but this week it signaled that this certainly isn't because it views these unions as sinful. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, the Church of England had a big synod on uh, what to do about homosexual marriage, and a lot of these bishops would be voting on it. The current state of play is in the United Kingdom, homosexual marriage is legal the church of england is the established church of england however they do not hold homosexual marriages they were exempted in the law from from having to do that so there was a push but this ever since then there's been a push for them to to do homosexual marriage to have homosexuals get married within churches and to be able to have church weddings they didn't have the votes for that in the synod But they did what we've just become so used to, I think, with all of the world's churches and uh, especially the Anglican Communion, uh, where they just kind of compromise and move away from what the Bible says and towards what society wants. And so this time, the way that they did that was, well, okay, there were still enough bishops kind of holding, drawing a line under the church, actually conducting these marriages. So the compromise was that they will ask God's blessing on these homosexual unions uh, that they will, um, you could they, these couples can get married outside the church, and then afterwards they can have a special service within the church 
where those those blessings are asked on them. Well, as you say, that kind of compromise really is rife within the uh, today's Christian world. Uh, And it seems like the the church really should be providing some spiritual leadership for society. Instead, it's following the trends in society. And these trends that you see uh, are steamrolling ahead at lightning pace. That's right. Also this week, we had the UK government announce that it's pushing forwards with a law to ban conversion therapy. And they specifically announced that this is going to include homosexual conversion therapy and um, transsexual conversion therapy. And it's got a lot of people very worried because potentially what this law could do, we don't have the text for it yet. Uh, It's something, though, they probably want in place by the end of the year. Uh, If there's any kind of pushback, if there's any kind of religious community that is, um, you know, even if a homosexual individual goes and says, well, I, be- you know, I want help um, with dealing with this, if you do anything other than say it's wonderful to be homosexual, well, you could end up being in jail. And then you bring the, the, the transsexual into- issue into this, and it's potentially even more dangerous, where if you have a teenager saying, well, I have been born in the wrong body and I want to undergo radical life-changing surgery and all of this, the potential is unless you say, yes, okay, let's do this right away, you could go to jail. They were actually not going to include um, trans issues in this bill because of exactly this fear that you would be pushing medical professionals to, you, you would basically be forcing medical professionals to, to do this, even if they think that it might be a mistake, that even if just to say, well, are you sure about this? Let's let's talk about this a little. Uh, have you do you understand the implications of what you're asking for, that any of those kind of conversations could now be criminalized? And what I think is amazing here is this is a conservative government. You know, this is the supposedly mm-hmm. right wing government of Britain that is moving full steam ahead with this in something that could, you know, you. you you had uh, where there were similar laws in place. I think it was Finland, one of the Scandinavian states. Someone got arrested for saying men can't be women or uh, men can't be lesbians, I think it was. Uh, so you've got potentially the Bible, Christian beliefs being criminalized on a huge scale by a conservative government in a country that has an established church. It's a marvelous a picture of just the problems that you get into when you abandon the uh, absolute morality of the bible and you're just off into human reasoning and there are a lot you know the people that are arguing that well this is only fair this is equitable this is just we need to be looking after these people it's just one thing leads to another to another as you go further and further away from actual truth and uh, these two stories really are very closely connected because of the abandonment of the church's responsibility to uh to protect those values Right. I mean, it's you can kind of understand the appeal of arguments that say, well, we need to be compassionate and and we need to be tolerant. But the minute you stop just looking at the Bible and saying, well, we do what we're going to do, what the Bible says and start looking to what 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 sounds good to me right now and what can I figure out? Uh, you know, it leads to some pretty horrible places. I think there are more and more people that are waking up to the fact that this trans movement is doing terrible things to young people around the world that there are you know the teens they're they're easily influenced and they're being walked into some horrible decisions or you recently saw a uh, a case in the united states where there's a homosexual a married homosexual couple uh who were adopting kids and raping them 
and they were um you know, they were kind of, it seemed like they were fast tracked through the adoption process by some kind of christian agency in order to presumably be tolerant but this is exactly what people warned about when you criminalized homosexual or when what sorry when homosexual marriage was legalized that you know that is what's going to happen when you legalize and encourage these behaviors you're going to have those you know those these are the perversions that that go with it uh and so yeah it's you know we're following our own minds but we're following them to some very dark places that is shocking stuff. If you want to know what the Bible says on this subject, you can request a free copy of our booklet, Redefining Family. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Mr. Palmer. A woman known as the most damaging spy in U.S. history was just released from prison. To learn why, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is an interesting story that uh, most people probably uh, haven't heard about this week, but uh really does shine a, a spotlight on a, a significant trend in modern American politics. The most effective Cuban spy known to have penetrated United States intelligence was released from prison on January 6th after serving 21 years of her originally 25-year sentence. Now, Anna Montez was known as the Blue Wren. That was her, her code name. She was a senior analyst at the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency. She was arrested uh, oh, 22 years ago in 2001 for revealing the names of two covert U.S. intelligence officers and for receiving encoded messages from Cuba. Uh, she's often referred to as the most damaging spy in U.S. history because for almost uh, 20 years uh, she worked in the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency uh, collecting intelligence for the United States government, uh, received many medals as one of the the best U.S. <laughs> intelligence analysts, uh, and then finally found out towards the end of her career that she was getting most of her uh, information directly from Cuba, and the information she was feeding back to Cuba was far more significant than the information mm -hmm. she was giving the United States. Uh, the U.S. was involved in a a lot of the civil wars in Central and South America during those years, uh, the, the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s, uh, trying to keep communist governments from taking over the nations on uh, below our southern border. Uh, and this Ana Montes was giving information back to Fidel Castro that he could use to support the communist and socialist insurgents battling America in those nations. And uh, n now they call her one of the most damaging spies because uh, of her role in making sure that communism got a strong foothold throughout Latin America. And so they've they finally released her this week, and I guess they say she's going to be moving to Puerto Rico, where where many people uh, with some socialist tendencies actually consider her uh, a hero. Uh, what kind of <laughs> first attracted my attention to this story, though, is that there's a man at the Center for Security Policy. Uh, he's a senior analyst there named Michael Waller, who noted that during uh, about five of Montez last years at the Defense Intelligence Agency, the head of her agency and her boss was James Clapper, 
who uh, who is now famous as a one of the ch- top spy chiefs for Barack Obama, who was mentored by a communist, Frank Marshall Davis, a close colleague of John Brennan, who voted for a communist, <laughs> Gus Hall, in the... Um, the 1976 election and who played a significant role uh, in the Spygate scandal we were talking about in the first half of this program trying to undermine Donald Trump. So you've you've got this birds of a feather flock together theme where you've got now this, uh, this same man who's helping uh, the communist Barack Obama and the communist John Brennan orchestrate this coup uh, against Donald Trump who believes in the Constitution was the boss of the most dangerous spy in American history, according mm-hmm. to our biographers, back in the um, back in the 1990s. Uh, now that's not a smoking gun that Clapper knew mm-hmm. that what um, Anna Montez was up to. Um, but this Michael Waller here at the Center for Security Policy says it's definitely not. Doesn't look a good. weird accusation to say that he may have actually been sheltering her for those years because she was doing uh, work on behalf of the Cuban government that Barack Obama would probably have approved of if it would have mm-hmm. been uh, if, if he would have been president instead of um, Bill Clinton at the time hmm. pretty fascinating uh, Mr. Miller has written an article about this most damaging spy in U.S. history released from prison that goes into more of these details. Go check that out at the website. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Earl Warren. Don't complain about growing old. Many, many people do not have that privilege. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand your world